Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Percussionist and composer Scott Deal's work is characterized by a deep interest in technology. His curiosity of new and emerging technologies spurred his founding of two collective projects. Scott founded the Telematic Collective, an internet performance group of artists and computer specialists, and he's a founding member and percussionist with the computer acoustic trio Big Robot. As a performer, Scott has concertized worldwide and has recordings on labels including the Albany, Centaur, Cold Blue, and SCI labels. He's received funding for his research from organizations including Meet the Composer, the Indiana Arts Council, and the Arts and Humanities Institute at IUPUI, where he is also a professor of music and director of the Donald Lewis Travel Arts and Technology Research Center. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So I've uh, followed your work for for some time. I think I first knew you as a a professor of percussion out in Alaska working on John Luther Adams' music. That's that's when uh, I think uh, you first came to my attention. We had some mutual friends and connections with CCM and uh, right. and, and, and and all of that. And so uh, anyway, I, maybe a, a good entry point here to, to get started would be to kind of talk about your journey as a percussionist into this new music technology world that you you find yourself now sure. okay so let's start there sure thanks a lot um you know it's interesting you mentioned ccm i think that that was the place where i did my first electroacoustic piece way back in the 80s uh when i was a graduate student there and that's i would say that that's the beginning point of of that journey you talked about going into the the world of technology and electronics um I had, I've had a lifelong, you know, all of us who are musicians, of course, have a lifelong uh, fascination with music and with playing. But, but also for me as a drummer, pretty early on when I was a teenager, I was quite taken with uh, electronic music, you know, progressive rock and, and also um, experimental electronic music. Um, it didn't supersede my desire to be a drummer, so I stuck with that, and I studied percussion in university. But there was always this part of me that wanted to get involved. But when I was young and 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 people were making those kind of choices, what they're going to do, you really couldn't be a drummer or percussionist plus be being an electronic musician. Um, it just, you know, it kind of wasn't set up that way. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, in, in CCM, I played my first piece. It was a tape piece. So it was a, you know, really, I'm going to reel to reel tape, a piece called uh, For Two Channel tape and two percussionists by Ramon Fuller. And this was in 1982 and played that on my master's recital. And I just thought it was great. And I thought this is, you know, I really want to be interested. I want to pursue this more. And so when I went to graduate school for a doctorate, I uh, incorporated, this was by the time I went to my doctorate was the nineties. And of course, MIDI was around MIDI instruments. And, and suddenly there were many ways for any instrumentalist, violinist, percussionist, or anybody to start accessing and using electronics in their music. And so uh, I focused on that in my doctorate. Uh, really, I did all my research and all of my recitals that I did had uh, electronic music components to it. And just decided then, this was in the early 90s, that 
that this was going to be the the focus of my uh, creative activity and research uh, for my career. So uh, then, as you mentioned, I was at University of Alaska, had many years of great work with John Luther Adams because we lived in the same town and we had the same interest and we really hit it off. Uh, and actually, he was way into electronic music, too. And so uh, I, we worked together on several pieces that, that used electronic components. Um, and then in 2007, all of the work I've been doing and also the, the work uh, I do with telematics, which we can talk about during the podcast, um, also started in Alaska. Uh, suddenly I was in a place where they had uh, people doing high-end research with uh, the, you know, the newly uh, expanded internet in, in about the late 90s, suddenly there was um, uh, this kind of cable, fiber optic cable was being laid that, that uh, universities seized upon because it enables extremely high bandwidth uh, telecommunications, like a gigabyte connection as opposed to, you know, 50 megabytes. And so uh, this was all in Alaska. And all of that work led me to my current position here at IEPUI um, doing just technology. So I'm interested to know, you, you mentioned this this piece that you played at CCM and, and your interest in electronic music going back to your, your formative years. But I'm, I'm curious to know about like just you, Scott Deal, as a person, uh, are you a tech guru? I mean, are you into the latest gadgets and laptops and computers and phones and uh, microphones? And I mean, are you, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, does one have to be into the the hardware, uh, software, hardware of this stuff to, to enter into this kind of research? Or did you sort of learn it along the way? Uh, I mean, was that a, an interest of yours from the beginning or? or? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, I think I was always more interested in the sound. And then because I'm, I'm pretty inept technologically now, you know, disclaimer, yes, I'm a professor of technology. And so I've had to train myself. But, um, you know, I, I teach software, but I really couldn't program on my own. And a lot of these things, I wouldn't consider myself someone who's always been rushing out to get the latest thing and, and be up on that. I do it professionally as I have to. But to me, the, the, the greater interest when I was young was was the sounds and the fact that that you know especially being a percussionist right with as you know being a percussionist you're dealing with a world of noise pretty much all the time and so i just thought it was a really interesting dynamic that you have this virtual you know something coming out of speakers that's so close to the the dynamics of being a percussionist and that's what drew me and then i always just sort of like you know had to pedal upstream you know and and uh use my limited technological skills to learn what I could to uh, use the gear that I wanted to use. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that uh, anyone who's listening who is a percussionist uh, it might be familiar with the Percussive Art Society and Percussive Notes magazine. And so uh, you pointed me towards when we were thinking about uh, doing the podcast that, that you had written an article recently. And, and you lay out this whole sort of uh, history, collective history of some of the landmark pieces that involve electronics with percussion, and that that seemed to be, you know, I think your your phrase was the exploration of an endless palette of sounds. As a percussionist, you know, that's kind of our world and what we're dealing. We're dealing with sound all the time, and so it's a kind of sort of a natural extension to then move into that world of, of electronic sounds and combining with our interest in what we are doing with sound into that that world. It makes sense. I, I'm curious to know, because I've, I've known some 
computer music composers who are, you know, really highly technical. They write their own codes. They make, you know, incredibly complicated programs and, and this kind of thing. And they they tend to be more interested in that aspect of it, uh, like the, the technical capability aspect, uh, which I guess, you know, produces interesting sounds, but th- they seem to be interested in structures and in... Uh, uh, I can't articulate it exactly, but but less organic, you know, something about uh, something about a percussionist combining forces with someone like that, uh, I would think makes a real powerful uh, combination. And so you've you've been able to do that with your own work, but also you found collaborators and interesting composers to work with to kind of uh, feed each other. Could you maybe uh, talk about a little bit about that? Like what composers have you worked with that you've had sure. real successful collaborations? Sure. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. There is a whole element in the computer music and technology world where, you know, a lot of the music that gets played at say conferences and things are proof of concept. You know, it's like, well, here's this device we created, here's this process and here's how it works. But you question, is it really, you know, going to stand the test of time? Yeah. Uh, And I think that uh, it's really been great the past five to ten years to see the large number of highly trained musicians getting into this field. Because when I first started going to those conferences, it was mostly computer people. And the performances were, you know, basically, I mean, that's what they're great at is computers. Yeah. Uh, but now you have people, and I'm, I would c- consider myself one of these people, you're really trained as a musician. You're thinking about performing on a stage and the dynamics of that, and you're thinking about music and musical sounds and how it's going to affect an audience. And it's really fantastic to have the combination of musicians plus technicians doing these things. So some of the, the better collaborations, uh, you know, we talked a bit earlier before we started about Eleni Lilio, so I'd say that's my current, one of my favorite uh, collaborations <clears throat> and Laney is a uh, uh, well-known electroacoustic composer. Uh, much of her work, especially going back to the 90s, is what you call acousmatic, which means there's no musicians on the stage. It's just strictly audio. Um, but she also has some stunning pieces for instrumentalists and chamber groups uh, with electronics. And it is a great, you know, it's a, it's a great way to collaborate. You take a person like that who's really, you know, their skill set is going to be in the in the computer realm. And, for instance, the way we, we've actually we're on our third piece now, working on our third piece together. But, um, you know, the way we got started, I mean, after years of listening to her music, I, I just approached her once. I said, you know, every time I hear your music in a concert, it's kind of like the best piece on the concert. <laughs> I said, it keeps happening. So I'd l- I would like to talk about, see if you'd like to uh, write me a piece, which she, and she was delighted. Uh, but then the process was great because uh, she came to my studio in Indianapolis and, and stayed a couple of days in Indy with me. And we basically explored the whole, my whole percussion inventory of instruments, you know, cymbals, drums, everything. She recorded, I don't know, hours worth of sounds. Hmm. And and uh, we also talked a lot about what would it mean to have a percussion solo with electroacoustics? You know, what, how does that work? And, and you know, all the, the manifestations of that. And um, then I let her, ha- you know, then she went at it. And six months later, uh, we have the piece, you know, which is titled The Rush of the Brook Stills the Mine. 
Um, but that was that was a fantastic process just to see her work and, and also to learn what she was listening for, you know, listening for sounds that would actually work well with electronics, which was a, a real uh, interesting revelation for me to see it from someone else's point of view, you know, to play something, you go, ah, that might not work, you know, but then I hit something else. Oh, yeah, this would be this would be totally great with, you know, this processing unit that I have. So, so uh, and, and this new piece that you mentioned, the rush of the brook stills the mind as part of this new percussion computer media collection that, that you've right. uh, put out. And so <clears throat> maybe you could talk a little bit about this piece. What, what about this piece uh, in, in like engages you? Uh, like yeah. what, can you just kind of describe a little bit about the piece? And Sure, you know? yeah. So the title is from the title of a poem by a poet named Wally Swist, who um, Eleni finds very inspirational. And she, she has actually, she doesn't write a piece of music to a poem, but she takes a poem of his and then she uses that as inspiration to then go out and do a piece. I guess I'd say it that way. So it's not programmatic. Um, uh, but, and, and she's a very kind of a meditative um spiritual kind of person and so nature is a real draw for her <clears throat> and so the piece really explores uh I, I wouldn't say the rush of a brook but it but it really explores the you know a a sonic world of um ringing sounds and then some heavy drum sounds combined with that uh <clears throat> and a bunch of other things along the way the kit you use is really huge but the thing that's great about it is that it's it's, it's big. It's 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 kind of like a great big giant, you know, piano sonata. Like if you know, think back when we were in, in university and you go to a piano recital and you hear the you know a Beethoven piano sonata. It's just big and it's it's like a big meal. Yeah. And and this piece is that way. It's 14 minutes long and it and it goes from very intimate sounds, very small metal pieces that you play and then you interact with to you know really intense drums and gongs and and you know crashing crescendos but all through it the thing that to me that really makes her piece fantastic is that um you have to it's not a tape piece it's not where you're just playing to a re pre-recorded electronic piece there are some recorded elements but what you're actually doing as you go through the piece is you're triggering certain uh, computer algorithmic processes that get turned on and turned off and then you have a your your kit is completely mic'd up and so as you play it's listening to you and then it's it's putting out pro is processing your sounds and then it's doing interesting things with them but unpredictable things and so you're really having to listen it's almost like you're playing with another person i mean it's not almost it is like you're playing with another person and so you make a sound, but then you hear it come back in a different manifestation, and you're, you you really have to. Um, the challenge of the piece is to engage that computer algorithm in a way that that in, in a chamber as a, in a way that would be successful for chamber musicians musicians to play together. You can't just stick to the script. In other words, you have to listen and move with it. And I find that artistically really challenging to do and very fulfilling.
So how much of a learning curve, uh, let's say someone who is relatively uh, novice uh, about using electronics with their, with their performing, um, what's, what's the learning curve on this one? I mean, you have to have you know, the yeah. setup, the percussion setup itself is pretty large. Yeah. But but the uh, what's t can you talk a little bit about the audio yeah. setup like what, sure. what kind of things you have to have? Yeah, and you know the, it's actually it's really great. You can be fairly well. Actually, I think with this one, it's it's better if you have some experience with electronics. But you don't have to have a lot. You need a computer, a laptop computer, and an audio interface, and four microphones, probably condenser microphones. And we can, if you want me to define those, I'll be happy to. Um, you, and basically, you know, you learn all the notes and you, it's not, I, I mean, I think in an afternoon, if you've never used an audio interface and then used um, a, what is called a max patch, which is a small piece of software that is designed for the piece of music. And so, you, and her max, patch, max patches, you don't have to, ha you don't have to own max MSP. To, you just have to get the patch, which you get when you buy the music. Um, you install it on your computer. You turn it on. You plug in your audio interface. You put computer. You put uh, microphones around. You know, and according to the diagram around your kit. And you need some sort of a foot switch to pedal through. You know, instead of hitting a, the space bar on a computer, you need a foot switch. But but then you're you're off to the races. You don't you don't really have to involve yourself with the computer, which is great for you know when we talked when she and I talked about what would make a good percussion solo with electronics. I said you don't want I don't want to be futzing around with the computer right. while I'm performing. You yeah. know I mean to play and then you really want to focus on being a performer and playing a virtuosic piece. And so the piece really kind of just glides right through as long as you're pedaling with the foot switch at the right moments during the piece. Well, I, I just, as we were chatting here, I pulled up uh, uh, the sample score that's on the website and I'm looking at the diagrams and everything. And um, I mean, to me for, and I'm, I'm relatively novice with electronics. I've done more with instrument building and uh sort of creating i i, I kind of like to work with the materials you know i so i'm still in that kind of world but right. so my my uh, interfacing skills are <laughs> a little bit less uh capable but uh um but it seems to be like this this could be doable by someone who maybe didn't have a whole lot of uh, experience and like you said the max patch is easily downloaded and I've, I've done that kind of thing before and there's probably a lot of people that have experience with that but man it is a big setup <laughs> oh yeah a it's very a big... large setup yeah it, it's interesting when she came to my studio so you, you mentioned in the beginning i'm also part of this trio big robot and the way big robot works i mean we're electroacoustic but um in order for me to play a concert worth of big robot music, I usually use a pretty big setup. I mean, you know, think of being a percussionist, you're gonna play a full length concert, you're gonna have a lot of stuff on the stage. Yeah. So I condense it down. Actually, to me, for, you know, a huge, for a large concert, it's not a big setup when you're considering it stretches over, you know, like it's, we could typically give a concert a little over an hour. But, but when I showed her that setup, and I said, well, this is my big robot setup, and I was thinking in my head that I used to play eight or nine pieces. <laughs> He was like, 
oh, this is great. I love this setup. Because <laughs> typically this kind of setup would be something that you would use for a whole concert full of pieces that you yeah. have them kind of nested in each other or that kind of thing. Is that what you mean? Right. Wow. It, that, and yeah. also you know, we talk, I remember now, now that we're talking, I remember back, this was 2012 when we, when we first started working on this, which as you know, was the, um, year that a lot of John Cage pieces were, wasn't, wasn't it the centennial for John yep. Cage? Centennial. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, and one of my favorite all time pieces of my whole life is 27 minutes, 10.54 seconds for a percussionist. Oh yeah. I just love that piece. I Me love too. to play it. Actually, I also played that at CCM on that same recital. Oh, and, wow. But I, I love the dynamics of that piece and, and how you have, you know, you, you have a score that you choose metal, wood, skin or anything. And then it's actually, I mean, if you're going to play all, you know, if you're going to play all 27 minutes of it and plus 27 plus minutes, it is a big setup. And so I had just finished playing that two or three times that year. And that those elements were also in my studio. And it was, of course, very heavy on my mind. And so um, she took the ideas that I uh, explained to her from that piece and also built it in this. So you have in the scores, you can see it's metal skins and then electronic sounds. Yeah. And she also goes to woods. But she really liked that idea of simplicity of like metal, skin, wood, anything. And for her, the anything became the electronic stuff. Um, and so I think between the big robot setup and then talking about cage and that setup for that piece, she just decided, well, this has to be, you know, this is a big piece. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now I'm seeing metal wood skin. And I think right. in the cage score, it said all other, the A it was an A and, uh, right. we exactly. uh, just, this is sort of an aside, but sort of, we can geek out on John cage for a second. Um, when, whenever that, uh, uh, came around the the 2012 came around uh we did at PASIC we did one of the focus days was a John Cage celebration right. and right. so I proposed to do I, I did also when I was at CCM on one of my rec, uh, doctoral recitals I did um a portion of the piece I didn't do the whole thing I think we did something like 12 minutes of it or something like that but the way we did it was I did it with two other players and we superimposed the piece on top of itself so it ended up, yeah, so like we each selected a, a, about 12 minutes or something, and well, I can't remember exactly how we did it, but basically we superimposed about 12 minutes of the piece on top of each, so, so we sort of staggered our entrances by chance operation, so it, it's a little more active than the original piece. Right. And so for, for that PASIC, I proposed to do the whole 27 minutes broken up with six people and I think it was in the space of like maybe nine or 10 minutes, something like that. And nice. it yeah. was so much fun. I, and because everybody has their really unique approach to what sounds they're bringing and, yeah. you know, yeah. how they're realizing it. And it, it just is a wonderful piece. Uh, so much fun and it interesting and uh, unpredictable. And, you know, especially when you can stretch it out across multiple players and you get to hear all these different approaches at the same time. Yeah, I I remember, you know, I I didn't get to go to that pacing, but I remember reading about your performance of that and uh, that it was going to be in there. And I thought that is totally fantastic. And actually, it's funny. I think when I was at CCM, I didn't play the whole thing. I think I played eight minutes of it. <laughs> well, I, I think that's one of the that's one of the uh, resistances to that piece. I think we would see a lot more performances of it if people realized that, hey, you don't have to play all 27 minutes. 
there actually are these splice points that you could play and you just rename the piece for whatever, right. however long you're doing, you know, but I think it was designed that way that there are these different points yeah. that you can not have to play the whole thing. But I think people see that title and they think, oh boy, I don't want to play <laughs> half an hour long piece. That's the whole, you know, that's most of a recital. And so yeah, I, totally. think, I think yeah. a lot more people would play it if they knew that. And so it just takes some of us championing it, you know, and Right. Because it's such an important historic piece. Oh yeah, that's know. a that's a monumental piece. Yeah, absolutely. That's really monumental. And and you know I've enjoyed. Yeah, I've played it. I don't know, maybe ten times in my career. <clears throat> um, and early in my career, I played the section that I learned. Uh, but then in 2012, I just I w that was the first time I played the whole thing. But that too is really satisfying to play it all through. Yeah, that's it's really neat to do it. It goes by like five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, Fun. Yeah, yeah, great piece. Well, uh, I want to get back to your stuff, and uh, let's since we're on this topic of your uh, percussion computer media collection, maybe we can talk. You mentioned uh, another piece, uh, your piece on there. Maybe we can talk right. about that one. <clears throat> yeah. So, Goldstream Variations um, is a piece for one to seven players. I generally play it as either a solo or a duet <clears throat> with electronics. And uh, it came out directly from my work uh, you, with uh, this form of this medium now is called telematic art, which a lot of your listeners uh, may have heard about but might not have much experience with. But telematic art is, is using the Internet as a performance instrument where you have musicians, actors, dancers, um, computer artists, whatever, at various, you know, locations physically, not all in the same building or in the same town. Uh, um, and then each of their areas is a live venue. So it's not like, how do I say it? So you can have a piece where, you know, it's being played in five different locations on the planet, but each of those locations, they get to also see the other people playing and hear the music or see the dancers or you know, so it's using media and screens and speakers and, and the Internet. It's a very exciting medium, and I love working in it uh, with collaborators. But I found through that and also through my experience of working with uh, <clears throat> electroacoustic ensembles that, you know, you get people together that want to do something either telematically or do something electroacoustically, and they're like, the, the thing that, that – becomes the fly in the ointment is that there's no standard ensemble. Mm -hmm. And so one ensemble might be a tuba player, a singer, a flautist, and a computer programmer. And another ensemble is going to be two guitarists and a pianist and, you know, someone who really likes the web. And so I wrote this piece because we were always sitting around, well, what do we play? And people were trying to figure out how to, you know, take an existing piece of say experimental music and and somehow kind of like shoehorn it in into something that we could play which i always had major aesthetic issues with you know i feel like if something's been written for a certain way it should be done that way absolutely yeah and uh even the ones that say you know well this is open or ended but i think historically you know you should still contextualize a piece historically and i just always felt uncomfortable going back to those pieces. So I wrote this piece as a way, it's very open. And so in, and if you look at the score sample, you can see it's not even notated on standard um, standard uh, notation, even though it's a tonal piece. But I did that to make it idiomatically possible for virtually any instrument to play the piece. Hmm. 
and be able to play. And, and, you know, if you read the instructions, there's a great deal of leeway to play it within the range of your instrument and to use certain techniques that are strong to your instrument to realize the score. And then I also, what I did was I made the, the electronics completely open to whatever the artist chooses to do. And I did that because the other thing I've realized over the past 20 years is the technology changes so fast that if I were to, you know, prescribe an exact certain way that this has to be done electronically, that piece could easily be stuck in that decade or right. in that final period when it got written, you know, and 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 there there might be a lot of resistance to changing to changing the dynamics of that or it might be impossible. And so <clears throat> I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to throw my trust to electronic artists, you know, in future years that they can take this piece and they pretty much anybody who's working on doing live electroacoustics with their computer and of the ones who get good at it, um, they have their own individual toolkit. They have their own individual ways of processing and things they like to do that are really interesting and compelling. And so I was kind of reaching out to those people with this piece saying, hey, here's a piece you can you can use your toolkit and you can apply your creativity to this music. So the the piece as it exists, you do you have to have someone then do that part of it like if you're going to do it as a solo piece do you have to have someone do the processing for you i think that's the best way to do it but i you know either that or you now this is where you wouldn't want to have you would if you're going to do it by yourself you need to have some pretty good chops i think um because you're going to need to record yourself and then process it and then build an electronic part that you would play to which is certainly permissible with the piece i see uh, and that's the way <clears throat> I do it. I, I, when I play it as a soloist, I have an electronic part that's sort of underlying that, you know, or sections will play like a fixed media thing for, for uh, two minutes, you know. And then I also have live processing components that I know we're going to do certain things at certain junctures in the music. And then I play on top of that. I see. So I do have a little bit of fussing with the computer, but really minimal since I don't really like to do that. Yeah. But the better way, I think, is to, uh, you know, so I'm aiming at percussionists who say might be in a graduate program who are also in a school that there's people learning computer music and then they're buddies with those people. Yeah. And so here's a here's a piece you could play and be the soloist or if you have a trio or a quartet or even up to a septet, <clears throat> all the instrumentals can play, but then you can incorporate one or two um electronic artists plus there's also media that comes with the piece so you could employ a media artist to take i have a photo set that i include with the uh, with the piece so they could actually take the photo set and then they can do very interesting things on their own and it can become this collaborative electroacoustic chamber piece you know where really chamber music ideals and um aesthetics are applied to this piece of music yeah, I, it's it's wonder what a what a fantastic idea. I mean, it's sort of in the spirit of all of those, uh, you know, what would Al say? The Herbert Brun, the the conspiracy. You know, you're 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 you're, you're creating the the opportunity to conspire with others to make uh, to make this piece of reality. What a great idea.
just to mention Al, you know, I mean, I know that we're both CCM grads. I, I have to give credit to many of the things that I still do in my career. I, I have to give credit to the percussion group Cincinnati. You know, I think that yeah. they, they were talking about this stuff way back in the early 80s when I was there. And it was, to me, really revolutionary at the time. And it was, you know, a big eye opener. But I found over the years I've, I've stuck with some of those ideas and principles. And now they're, they're becoming really quite mainstream. Well, it's, it's really amazing the, the work that those guys have done over these years, over these many years, and uh, it was so wonderful to see them honored at the Percussive Arts Society yeah. going into the Hall of Fame, and what a, what a great tribute to them and their work and lasting influence from, from all of us who had a connection with them. Of course, Al is like a—I I just spent an hour uh, before our talk here, I did another podcast this morning and uh, with a poet, Dean Rader. And he basically, it was our part two, and he basically, we spent the whole podcast, he said, I want to have a part two where I ask you questions. So I basically <laughs> got to, I sort of got to be on the receiving end of the podcast for a change, which was kind of fun. And But anyway, we talked a lot about Al, because we have a piece that we do together, and uh, so I, I won't go on and on about Al again. But man, you know, I, I couldn't uh, agree with you more about the, just the lasting influence and... Yeah. Uh, just that how it shaped so many of us that have come through that program. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. Totally. Well, let's see. Uh, maybe this is a good point to pivot and talk about, uh, you mentioned the telematic uh, thing. Maybe you could talk about that telematic collective. We want to talk about your collective. So the telematic right. group and Big Robot, uh, wherever you want to go with that. Sure. <clears throat> well, the telematic collective um is a, it, it, I guess the base of it is here at, the, at IUPUI, and it's the graduate students I work with, but then it extends out. We always, when we, for instance, we're doing a concert this week, <clears throat> and we'll have people online with us from China, from Beijing Central Conservatory, uh, from University of Calgary in Canada, from Boston, and from Alabama. And so all those people, even if they're not affiliated with the university, become part of the telematic collective for that time they're working in it. And so it's just a group I keep going. Um, but, you know, it's really, really amazing to work online with artists and to use the Internet as a tool in this way. And I'm not sure when it's going to become more popular or if it does become more popular. But I, I feel that it's a... Um, it's a very significant um, medium that has sprung up in the last 20 years. <clears throat> Pauline Oliveros got going with it in the early 90s. Uh, of course, there were some people who were experimenting with uh, doing telematic things. And, and really, you can say telematics would be anything that you use networked applications. And so it doesn't even have to be audio. It could be video. It could be other things. But the, the origins of it go all the way back to um, the early 60s uh, with some of the Flux artists. Uh, and some people were even, uh, some of the early efforts were people who would simply use what was called a telex, which was sort of a, uh, you know, the precursor, it was the ancestor of the fax machine. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, back in the 60s, an office would have a telex and you could send a document through the telex. And so artists were making pieces, little pieces of handwritten, you know, drawings and then telexing them in real time as a part of a, a performance art scenario. And so uh, and then audio, once audio became, 
easier to do other than just over the phone. That became a, a part of it. And then once the internet going and got going in the 90s, as I mentioned, people like Paulie Molinaveros and Chris Chafe at Stanford, Mark Dresser at uh, UCSD, these people were early pioneers of, of uh, creating music online and, and exploring all the aspects of that because you're dealing with latency, you're dealing with uh, glitch, you're dealing with, you know, the fact that, that uh, the internet is, although we look at it every day, it's, it's when you're, when you're dealing with a piece of music, it's inherently unstable, you know, it can clip out on you, it can shut down, uh, you can suddenly get delayed longer. I mean, think about when you've tried to refresh a window, you can't get it going, you know, and yeah. you have pressure, you have to wait. And so all these issues come into play and it makes it itself its own medium. But I think the thing that's really important about it is that I see it as a way to tie the whole world together. You know, that, that now you can work with musicians and artists and, and other kinds of people anywhere on the planet. Yeah, it's really op opened up uh, your your circle of uh, potential collaborators to literally anywhere in the world. That seems like a really a cool idea. It, I mean, you're tapping into pe people that you wouldn't be able to collaborate with on a uh, you know on that kind of level. Uh, that that technology. I I mean, even the uh, you know even in um, popular music, studio music. I mean. Uh, I'm thinking of other uh, other kinds of applications of this technology that that people uh, the layperson might might even know was, you know, I mean, drummers now are um, I have drummer friends of mine who, you know, they never actually are in the same room with the the band that they're recording with. Everything right. is done over the internet. They right. they're sent the the tracks. They record their drum tracks. They send it back, and the album is released. And <laughs> they've never been together once. You know. So oh, yeah. I mean that's a, a an easy example but but nevertheless a way in which the internet's impacting you know the music world and it's it's so exciting um you know to see some of the interesting performance configurations I'll just share one that I think was really fascinating uh I I helped create this opera telematic opera about 7 years ago with uh, the composer Matthew Bertner uh who's a fabulous composer he's written great percussion music as well um, but we, uh, I designed systems and kind of designed the whole external or, you know, the way it was going to happen. And he wrote the, the, composed the music and the libretto. But it was an opera about climate change, uh, specifically in the Arctic. And, and Matthew and I worked on it because, of course, I lived in Alaska for 12 years and he was actually born and raised in Alaska. So we both uh, in the 90s were seeing the, the effects of climate change already. And it was already on our radar. And then in, I think we started working on this in 2007. But anyway, just to cut to a performance, once, you know, it just struck me, well, this is an amazing medium. Uh, one of the, the, one of the um, elements of the opera, the opera you would always use three screens. And so whatever venue was going to be connected to the opera, you'd have to have three big screens for the audience to see. One would be to see other musicians at the other sites. And sometimes we did as many as five sites worldwide to play the piece. Um, another screen would be left to, you know, for, for um, artistic purposes, video art, using these huge photo sets and movie sets of, of, climate change examples in the Arctic and the North Pole and, uh, you know, northern Canada, northern Alaska. 
And then the last wall was called the thought wall. And this was, to me, really where you look at something like telematic art and say, yes, this can be its own medium and it can be different. The thought wall was, was a uh, program that <clears throat> enabled anybody in the, who was in the audience, if they used their, their, uh, their iPhone or an iPad, you know, a, a tablet or even a laptop, if they bring it to the concert, they could, they could go to a website, get hooked up, and then they could be writing and commenting on the opera as it was being performed. Oh wow! And it and it was built in. And so the 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 opera, the lead, and when the premiere was in New York in 2010, and uh, Joan LaBarbera was the the MC. That there was a part in the opera that there's a main speaker who kind of guides everybody through the opera, and that, that it was the singer Joan LaBarbera. And so in, in her score, she has to ask questions about, you know, what do you think about what you're seeing? What, what about your word about your home? What do you see about, you know, all these questions that would engage people about climate change. And then people would be typing, you know, from Norway and from Alaska and from Virginia. And then their text at certain points in the score, and Matthew was a genius in doing this, you had to, she would sing at certain times in the score, she would sing what people had been writing. In real time. Whoa! So, it, so, so her score was generated uh, live, kind of. Right. Well, parts of it. Parts, parts of, of it. her score. Wow. Like there'd be a section. Okay, now grab something that somebody said, and she had her own monitor so, of the thought wall, so she could see it without having to look back behind her. But everybody in the audience could see. I mean, the thought wall was for every location, and you could see the writing, and so you could see what people were saying as you were watching the opera. And then she would grab these sentences and sing them. And so it was a way to, you know, really the, the audience became part of the creation of the piece. And then you had people all over the world, you know. And so I thought it was perfect. Here you're talking about a, a situation or, a, you know, the, the, the subject of climate change that affects every human on the planet. And so this is a way to get people from all over the world or just different parts of the world into one space, a virtual space, and have this conversation, you know, at the same time with each other. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. It was very cool. Wow. So are there plans for, uh, I mean, is this going to be happening again? Are there new thing, new projects, things that you have brewing or... Well, with that, I've just been with the telematic thing is part of the research here at the university. And so I just keep up a, a you know, a regular uh, effort. And so, you know, uh, that was a big production that we did. We found funding for and okay. it, it had a run. And, and of course, the score still exists. I'm sure that it'll get performed again. We have a website. The, top, the opera is called Oxalak, which is spelled A-U-K-S-A-L-A-Q which means uh, melting snow in okay. um, Inuit, Inuit language, okay. Inupiat, Inupiat language of Alaska. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, we're, there's, there's a, a small but very enthusiastic body of people around the world, mostly connected to some kind of research institute or university that are, are working on uh, telematics. Uh, the, the thing that I try to work on with it is how to make it available to people outside of universities. You know, come up with strategies that people could do it from their home or from a nightclub that doesn't require, you know, using software that doesn't require a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. But of course, then the, the quality goes way down as well. So it's kind of a, you know, we're, as things get better, it becomes easier to do, but it's, st it's still a small, you know, uh, medium of artistic expression. Yeah. But I think it has a little future. 
Okay, great. Let's talk about Big Robot. So how did that come about? Well, uh, so when I first came to Indiana, I was in 2007. Um, my first year was also the first year for the other two guys in Big Robot. One of them was my brand new graduate student, Jordan Munson, who just finished a percussion degree at University of Kentucky. And it, it's interesting, he, he and I hooked up because he was going to come to Alaska to do a master's degree with me because I was so focused on technology and that's what he wanted to do with, as a percussionist. But then suddenly I took this job in the middle of the summer and I told them when I took it, I said, well, I have some graduate students that I'm, they're going to feel pretty bad when I tell them I'm not going to be here in the fall. And they said, just bring them with you. And so <laughs> Jordan, 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 we met for the first time here at IUPUI, the first, wow. day, first day we met. But he's a brilliant musician and brilliant programmer, too. Uh, and then the other person was Michael Drews. He was brand new as a professor on the faculty. Uh, right out of University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign as a composer, an electroacoustic composer. So, you know, it was one of those things. We all hit it off. We were kind of in the same ballpark aesthetically. And we were all three interested in combining, you know, acoustics with electronics in real time and also media. And so we just started working together and it gelled. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. And we put out two albums and we've had, you know, we've we've had a good run. We've played all over the world. And, it's been great. So, uh, so here's the here's the kind of thing that that's curious to me because um, when I, when I think about when I look at your your journey, uh, your and your work and and everything that you've uh, done, especially in the last like let's say ten years since you moved to this uh, IUPUI uh, gig. <clears throat> when when I started this podcast. I started in 2015 as a kind of a sabbatical project. It was kind of a, uh, I was taking a sabbatical and I had a official sabbatical project. This was my unofficial <laughs> sabbatical project. And I took it on because I was just really burned out and I, I wanted to expand my potential network of collaborators. And there were just a lot of people out there doing a lot of really interesting stuff that I was into. And right. I, I wanted to just talk to him. And so that was the idea for the podcast. So when I when I see someone like you who has such a similar trajectory in terms of like what you ended up doing as a percussion professor, well, that's what I ended up doing because it was kind of the place where I could do the music that I was interested in and, and do the kind of collaborations that I was interested in. And for me, it's kind of, uh, I do a lot with you know, speaking percussion. I, I don't do a whole lot with electronics, but I've, I've delved into that world a little bit. But for me, it was more of working with poets and doing socio-political pieces and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And right. um, this was the academic world was kind of a place where I could fully ex and engage in that kind of stuff. And, but I find just year after year, uh, it just sort of grind. It was a grind. The the, the <laughs> running of a running of a percussion area was just kind of a grind. And so I was curious when I saw that you had taken this job at this other thing and you were doing this music technology. I thought, wow, how did you make the leap from doing uh, a percussion job in academia to to this thing? Like, how did you get the qualifications to yeah. be marketable in, in another academic discipline. Well, you know, I, I okay. <laughs> <That's a great laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I, I think it happened in spite. I think what it was, I was just so active doing it. So I'll, and I'll just share two really quick accounts of that. So when I got to Alaska, of course, when I was in graduate school, as I mentioned, doing my doctorate, I really decided just to really focus. I bought a mallet cat. I bought synthesizers. I got composers to write for percussion plus electronics and using the mallet cat. And so I took and when I auditioned for my first university position, which was the University of Alaska, I told them, I said, you know, all all of us musicians, we kind of got to have a thing, you know, especially if you're going to talk about your work. And so someone might be a marimba player, or as you mentioned, you know, you're doing a really cool field, the whole thing of of, of text and spoken word plus percussion, which is amazing. Um, and so I, you know, when I was there, I said, my whole thing is I'm, I'm incorporating electronics into my work and they think that's great. It should fit here. Well, so I was doing that for a long time and I don't know, five or six years. And one day the supercomputing center called up and they said, Hey, we want you to come take a look at this, uh, space we have here in the university. And so they showed me this thing they called the discovery lab. And it was this giant, uh, 3d environment, like a box, uh, a box environment like a room, you know, and with three screens, being three sides of the room. I was like, wow, this is amazing. It's really cool. And they're like, great. We're glad you like it. You want to do something with it? <laughs> and I was like, I have no idea what I would do. And they're like, that's okay. You can think about it. Cause so in other words, they were recruiting me to, you know, they saw what I was doing and they, they, they got the idea that I would be into it. And they opened that door wow. for me to go in and start playing with it which led to, then I found out, I mean, it was, to me, it was very synchronistic because within a few weeks of that, I found out about these people in the United States, various in Canada who were doing telematic art, which I'd never heard of before. This was 2002. I'd never heard of telematic art. I didn't know what it was. And, but I heard about these people and then suddenly the, uh, the means to do it was through these researchers in this discovery lab because they had the internet connection, which I did not have in my office. And they had this, you know, cameras and they had microphones. And they had everything I would need. And so for about five years, I just immersed myself. It, to me, it was just more fun than, I mean, I hear what you're saying, the grind of the percussion studio. And I, I love being a percussion professor. I love giving lessons. But you're right. You know, you kind of kind of look for a creative outlet. And there yeah. I was myself up in Fairbanks. And, you know, I mean, there's Fairbanks Symphony, which that was great. But but you know, it wasn't really, I would say, my primary interest. And so this telematic stuff with this lab suddenly became something that I did at night or in between all my other responsibilities. And, and it was compelling. And I thought it was amazing. And I wrote about it. And I presented some things that we did. And then one day out of the blue, so like five years later from 2002, and then 2007, IUPUI, they called me out of the blue one day. And they said, we've been seeing your telematic stuff. And we want you to come down here and do it. Wow. And that was really, I was like, you know, I'm a performer. I'm a percussionist. They're like, yep, we know. We know. We don't, you know. And I said, I can't pro, I couldn't program something if you pointed a gun at me. <laughs> like, we know that too. We, but, but you're doing something here we like, and we'd like you to do it down here in Indiana. So that's how I got the gig. Fascinating. What a fascinating thing. So, so, so it's a great story about following your passions and, and yeah. following that, that creative uh, drive. And, yeah, and, I think so. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a great story, Scott. That's so cool. <laughs> that's such a cool story. Yeah. Great. Well, that's super inspiring. And um, so, I, so do you ever sort of 
miss the the days of teaching snare drum etudes and <laughs> and and replacing all those felts and wing nuts on the cymbal stands? <laughs> you know what? Believe it or not, I do. I really. <laughs> and and if I'm ever I'm visiting a university and I walk down the hall and I hear everybody practicing, I really miss that too. Yeah, yeah. That I, always back great memories of that yeah well I, I don't mean to say that i was uh that i'm that i don't like my my teaching position or i don't mean to imply that it's just that there there is something about the to me it's all the nuts and bolts you know that literally the nuts and bolts like yeah. you know students coming in with uh the 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 chimes broke again yep. for the You're fifth right. time you know and <laughs> get out your toolkit and put it back together and it's that kind of stuff that just that that grinds on me a little bit. I, I love the teaching too, and and seeing students grow and and you know find their find their way, find their voices, and and mature and all of that. I, that's all really wonderful. Um, but it's something about the something about the the daily upkeep of a percussion area that sent. I think I I, I hear it from a lot of people. You know what? I, you mentioned the University of Kentucky. One time I, I talked to Jim Campbell, and he said, John, you want a piece of advice? And this was literally just like out of the blue. Some I don't even remember how we – it was at PASIC one year, and he said, here's a piece of advice. He said, every year, just buy a bag of wing nuts and a, <laughs> and, and a, a bag of, of felts and cymbal sleeves. He says, you don't need them, but you will. And he said, just every semester, just budget for it. It's like 50 bucks. He said, I promise you, you'll sleep better at night. <laughs> oh, man, you're not kidding. It's so true. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, you're right. The daily grind of you just bought a beautiful new concert snare drum stand, and now the wing nut that holds it together is missing. Yep. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, now I have to deal with a studio full of uh, microphones and screens and speakers, and it's kind of like I had to trade one for the other. <laughs> Yeah, there's always something. I can. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Scott, we've we've reached our uh, about our time here. I try to keep the podcast to about uh, 45, 50 minutes or so, and we're right. we're about right. at that time. So I think this is a good place to to stop. But thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, sharing your your story and all of this. Uh, lots of links and things for people to follow. So I'll have a, some extensive notes to to write and links to put in. Um, in closing, though, I always like to ask this one question, which is, how does one live and sustain a creative life? I think it's a great question, and, you know, I, I hope I don't sound too, uh, you know, motivational speaker about it. But I would say that, I, you know, and everybody's got a different thing. I would say that uh, to me, and, you know, you, had, you told me you would ask me that question, so I've had some time to think about it. Um, that you place the, your satisfaction in the actual doing of the work and that the results, you know, the results will follow and the results are an up and down thing. Sometimes you're standing on top of the world and other times you're down in the deep valleys and you think that no one even knows you exist. But if you find happiness in the daily, just, you know, I'm happy because I can do this creative stuff and I can think of things and, and, you know, I'm on to the next project and I'm in the middle of it. Um, to me, that's the food that feeds, you know, my musical creative soul that keeps me going is the work itself. Yeah, fantastic. Great. Well, thanks so much, Scott. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. You've got a great podcast. Thanks. 
And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.